bless you all. I want to go to this, the scriptures this morning. Of course, we want to uh, teach out of the Word of God today and bring you as best as we can to a to a higher understanding of the Word of God in whatever dimension that we can. It's only the Spirit of the Lord. Uh, a few Sundays ago, I was speaking about um, several Sundays, not by might, uh, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. The understanding of the Word of God is not by might, nor by power. I've seen very powerful men, very experienced men, who stood in pulpits and had very little understanding of the Word of the Lord. I think some of that comes from um, what's been passed down to us. I think traditional things, uh, organizational things, denominational things, have kept us sometimes from really understanding the Word of the Lord. I'm going to say some things this morning that you have heard. I'm going to say some things that probably you have not heard. But we want to... Um, the best of our ability to bring you to, like I said, to it just a, a fresh newness of some study in the Word of the Lord. So I want to go to Matthew, the 10th chapter, and uh, read a couple of verses, beginning with verse 2 to uh, through verse 4. And the names of the 12 apostles are these. And that could have been the name of the 12 chosen disciples. Because in the first verse, he says, having called his 12 disciples. The second verse said, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose last name is Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, Matthew kind of looking back at that because, because when the Lord called them to this work, um, it wasn't, he had not yet betrayed him, but that's the identification of Judas, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. And so I just wanted to look at these these names here this morning, uh, 12 disciples, apostles, and uh, I want to preach a little bit more this morning, teach and preach a little bit more about Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Jesus. Now, I'm going to interject Yeshua and Jesus uh, from time to time. It's the same name, Hebrew and English, so I hope you understand that. And sometimes I just like to use Yeshua in the setting of him being a Jewish rabbi. Um, I think if we say Rabbi Yeshua, it's fine, Rabbi Jesus, fine, but I'll use them both ways. But we want to talk about that this morning again. I just got some things on my heart I feel like that the Lord would uh, have me to share, and uh, hopefully it'll bless you this morning. Jesus, we... We thank you, Lord. Your word is so powerful. 
we think we're all that. We think we've got everything figured out and we're so smart. Then we come to your word and, and we realize there is so much there that we have not even touched. But, Lord, you reveal it from time to time. Lord, you show us line on line and precept upon precept, and you begin to open our understanding. I remember that in one setting it said that you begin to open the understanding of your disciples. So, Lord, we're no different here this morning. We need an opening of our understanding in you. We just ask you, Lord, that your presence, your glory be glorified this morning in it, and we'll give you, Lord, all the praise. Amen, and amen, and amen. I need to go back to John 1, 1. I, I end up there so much. We were in teaching for several years. Our brother De La Vega, which we love, he's, he taught with us for oh, I would say five or six years in this one subject. We didn't leave the first chapter of John. Well, I think it was several years. There was so much here. There's so much understanding. I feel this. I've never heard anybody else say this. They always call it the first 18 verses of John, the prologue to John's gospel. I call it the key to the understanding of who Jesus is. And there's so much there. It's so rich. It, it, Brother Del Vega, is beautiful, beautiful and then great, he said. The first verse in the beginning, and that just starts us out, takes us back. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Mark and Luke especially talk about the birth of Christ and about the events of Bethlehem and the taxation and all the events of the birth of Christ. Um, and then I think, I think the book of, of Mark starts sort of at the ministry of Christ and, but John will tell of the plan of God, which is so much different. And this is something you may not have heard. And, uh, if you've been here a little bit, you, you, you have, um, the, the first verse there that talks about in the beginning was the Word. If we take that word out of there, W-O-R-D, and go back to the original word, which is logos. In the beginning was the logos of God. And it's been a little bit since I've talked about this, so all you home folk just, you know, it's just too bad. We're going to talk about it again. But in the beginning is the Logos of God, and the Logos of God was within God, and God was the Logos. So defining Logos in the history of this is that, that Jerome, who put these scriptures into Latin, used the wrong word here. And the Latin Vulgate was the Bible for a thousand years when the English uh, translator John Wycliffe was the first to begin to translate into English. All he had was the Vulgate and used the similar word uh, that would be the English uh, equivalent to the Latin word. 
and used, put in place the word word. And since then, every English Bible, you do not own an English Bible that does not say in the beginning was the word. You don't own one because it's not translated that way. But the Greek scripture is in the beginning was the logos of God. The Logos of God can be His Word. It can be a, a communication of words. But the Logos is a little bit different than Rhema, which is a statement or words that the Logos is actually the, the best equivalent we have is the transliterated English word logic. In the beginning was the logic of God. Reasoning, purposing, planning of God. See, if you just say word, you add logic to it, it's what's behind the word. It's not just a word that goes out. And I have used this so many times, and I will again, because it applies every single day to our life. If you say things without thinking, Things are going to come out of your mouth you never thought of. I mean, that applies to me every day. They're words, but when I think about what I'm saying, now I have joined logic and reasoning behind my words. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? So it's not just a word that goes out of my mouth. Words just don't go out of God's mouth. He is the ultimate in understanding and wisdom and reasoning. So in the beginning, he doesn't start to do anything. He doesn't begin anything without logic and reasoning for what he's going to do. And there's purposing. There is planning in it. And if it is a word, a communication, it's set in the logic of God. With this definition in mind, we can participate in the concept that Jesus was the central thought of the beginning. You know, and you'll hear, it's taught all around that, that you just replace the word in the beginning. You take the word and that was Jesus, so in the beginning was Jesus. And uh, really, if you want to go that way, T.F. Tenney said, that's fine, we'll go that way. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was within God, and God was Jesus. If you just want to take that word, log us and pull it out of there and put Jesus in there, that works good too. But if we see him as being the central figure of all things, and that, that's why this verse is important, is that it shows us that in God's mind, in God's heart, that it wasn't about humanity. It was about God in Christ Jesus. That's a, that's a big concept to swallow. That, that just seems so hard. I mean, where we've come from, where we've been taught, what we've seen... Um, we just believe that things, you know, kind of transpired and, and, and God just shot off the hip and, and, and sort of put things into existence and then things began just to, to, to spin out of control or whatever. But I like this verse 
that says he is before all things. How many would believe that this morning? If God said that he is before all things, that Christ is before all things, how many would believe that this morning? That's both in priority and in prototype. I personally believe, and this church, our ministry, believes there was a time when there was no sun. Not the, there was a time when there was no planet sun, too. But there was a time when there was not a sun. But in the mind and heart of God, there is going to be a sun. So he's the first of all creation. Yes, he's the first of all creation in the mind and heart and logic and wisdom of God. Because all things are created for him and through him and because of him and without him. You take him out of the picture, there is nothing that is created that has been created. Falling down the few verses under, under the first uh, verse of John. And so he is before all things both priority and prototype. In other words, all things came to be from the central truth that God determined to become flesh and dwell among us. See, this is what was in the beginning. This wasn't halfway through. This wasn't because Israel sinned and God had to come up with a second plan. No, this was the first order of plan of God. He had it all thought out before he ever said, let there be light. He had already planned this thing before he knew what was going to transpire by what he had created to be central and everything would come in under that centrality of Jesus Christ. I've never heard this preached in my life. I was raised in church. Uh, everything that I heard in going this direction, which wasn't much, it never did really talk about him being central of all things. In this body, we believe that Jesus Christ is central and that, that it's him. The program is about him. The, the earth and the fullness thereof is about him. Humanity is about him. Um, everything that we are or can be, it's centrals in Jesus Christ. And if this is true, we have risked our very lives and futures and eternity on it. Then everything preceding the incarnation or everything that happened before the event of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us in incarnation, everything that happened was merely in preparation, was a type and a shadow of what was. Uh, this, this, this is kind of a hard pill to swallow because we look at reality, what you can taste, what you can touch, what you can hear, what you can sense, what you can feel. That's what we think reality is. That's not what God thinks reality is. God speaks a thing before it ever exists. He does a thing. He sets it in order, and he doesn't wait for us to deem it right or real. See, Yeshua is the whole revelation of God, and he is the original intent of the whole revelation of God. 
say, I want to know who God is. Jesus made it clear. You can't, you're not coming to God. Not without coming through him. You can't get to God. There's no, he is the door. He is the way. Can you say amen? So, I'm, I'm going to have to have um, a couple of brothers help me here. Shane, I forgot to say that he's a visitor because he's not. Shane, help me here. Cole, help me out here. What I got here is a set of plans. A lot of you are from So you hold that side, and you hold this side. All right? Make it, make it where they can see it. And so what I present to you uh, this morning, this happens to be the house that we live in. And they took this plan. And so what, what I want you to see about this plan is that the artist, the draftsman, he came up with this before he ever came up with the pages behind it. See, this is the finished product in the mind of the draftsman. The pages behind it merely are supporting this. See, this is not in existence when, when, when the draftsman draws it up. That's in his mind. That's what he sees as the finished product. Now turn the page. Everything supporting that will be in the pages behind it. Oh, here we have a foundation plan. Go, go to another one. And we have a framing plan right behind that. It just lays out everything. You can see where all the rooms are and everything. Go to another one. And then we start to get into some, some roof plan. Oh, some elevations. And all these, go to another one. All these are about what's on the front cover. These are not about their self. They're about what's on the front cover. So thank you, brothers. Roll that up and just throw it over there for me. I just wanted to bring that forward because this is the closest that I can get to how God saw. God saw the finished product. And when he drew the plan, he didn't just see the foundation. He didn't just see the framing. He didn't just see the ages, if you will. He saw the finished product. So on the first page, in the beginning, we just got in the beginning. On the beginning of those plans is this picture in the mind of the man who drew the plans, and everything else is going to go to it. If you took those plans this morning and stood outside of our house and looked at that picture and looked at the house, you would say, that is the completed project. It's done. That's it. Now, I want you to know this. If you take the plan of God, and you take John, the first chapter, where God planned it all out, and that his revelation would be in the incarnation of himself, God becoming flesh, and you see that as the front page, then you see the rest of it as nothing but supporting that. You see it maybe as foundational, maybe as framing, maybe as roofing, maybe where everything's laid out. You might see it that way, but that is not the fullness. The fullness is what God has designed and put out in front. And I want you to know that the fullness is in Christ Jesus. All of the fullness of the Godness dwell in Him bodily. 
Nothing else represents the fullness of God. So God drew it out and put it on the front page. Now, I like that. Isn't, isn't, isn't that great metaphor? The Lord talks about building a house a lot of times, doesn't he? In fact, he says, don't build a house unless you sit down and count the cost. Otherwise, you don't have enough to finish it, and the people will laugh at you because you didn't get finished. But every time, and, and, and I'm a builder, and some of you have built, and you know about building a little bit, but every time I go to do something, and, and people will say, man, you can visualize that. How is I can't really visualize how this is going to turn out. I can't really see what's there. And, but in my mind, and, 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 and Rodney, and we've been doing it a while, and I've been doing it a long time, and, and I can see it. I, I actually can see that thing already the way it is before I get started. Even sometimes I don't need a plan because I can visualize it in my mind how it's going to look, how it's going to turn out. I'm going to tell you something about God. In his mind, he already knew what was going to happen, and everything else is just supporting pages. It just brings us to Christ. Christ is a sinner, not the supporting pages. Christ is a sinner, not the ages. Christ is a sinner, not Abraham. Christ is a sinner, not Jacob. Christ is a sinner, not Joseph. It's not David. It's not even Mary. It's not even Joseph who was the stepfather of, of Jesus. It's none of those people. They are simply the supporting pages to get us to where the one is revealed, the finished product of God stands before us, whole and finished before us. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? That's an amazing thing. And so I'm beginning again to read some things that kind of triggered in my heart some thought. The, um, the proof that these things are only to bring us to Christ. And I would say this, and I wrote this down. Let me just repeat this. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and even Joseph and Miriam are not the real. I'm not saying they weren't real people. They were physical. But in the plan of God, they're not the real. In the plan of God, Christ coming in the flesh is the real. Love Abraham, Moses, all the elders and the ancients that went before, but they are not the real, the true. They only assisted in bringing the real to fruition. So here's some of the proof of this, just a couple of things. Uh, John the Baptist made a quote. The Pharisees and rulers were being very smug and smart. And God said, or, or rather John said this, God is able to raise up children of Abraham out of these stones. Now, do you think that was a joke? Do you think he was just saying, oh, by the way thing, you know, sort of maybe some kind of a, a parable? No. He literally was saying that God could raise children up to Abraham. You think you're smug. You think you're smart. You think you have the system going. 
you're, you're a Jew, you have, you know, the temple going, the, the whole thing is, is, is just flourishing. But I want to tell you this, God could replace you with these stones because really it's not about Abraham. It's not about the Jew. It's not about the temple. It is about the Christ. A zealous woman spoke up out in a meeting of Jesus. And uh, this is maybe why Paul said, uh, no, I, maybe I shouldn't go here. Paul said, I don't allow, allow don't suffer the, the, the women to teach in a church. A woman shouted out in the crowd, Jesus is teaching, and, and she just felt anointed. You know, and I've seen it. It's ugly. Shouted out in the crowd, blessed be the womb that bore you. Jesus' answer to this is an emphatic, if you look in the Greek, is an emphatic no. No. The woman that bore me is not blessed because of that. Rather, blessed is everyone that hears the word and does it. I wonder if Mary was there that day, you know. And it wasn't meant as a cut towards Mary. What it was meant as was an exaltation of Christ. Because Mary is no more handmaid. And I've said this before. If she had not said, be it, uh, be it to me according to your will, God will use somebody else. And the Catholic Church has made Mary the fourth part of God. I don't know if you're aware of that. But she is the queen of heaven. And Jesus said, no. You do not worship her. You do not worship Abraham. You do not worship Jacob. But all of your worship and glory and honor goes to Jesus this morning. Amen. Can you say amen to that? Thank you, Lord. Well, let's go on a little bit. And so let me say this. The 12 sons of Jacob were not the real. The tribes of Israel were not the real. I was raised in church in a lot of Sunday school. You know what Sunday school is. We don't have it here. We have Wednesday class. And, but Sunday school was you come and you go into a class and you have a class and then you come back out and have it. And it's just too much teaching, really. Um, you know, one, one teaching uh, uh, service is enough. And so, but, but you'll go to Sunday school and, and there you would basically learn about the tribes of Israel. And, man, I heard a lot of things about all about Israel and the tribes of Israel and and how God did this and that and, and, and worked in the tribes of Israel. And, 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 you know, hey, that's okay. That was back pages. But to make that central is really a foolish thing to do because the 12 tribes of Israel were not the real. Let that set for a second. They were a type of what was to come. I know that this is just really, you know, I'm going to be standing out here on a, on a piece of ice myself because there's not too many preachers that really will, will bring us past Israel. That somehow we're still dependent upon Israel. Somehow God chose people, you know. Israel was not the real. 
buying the books. Another harbinger book or whatever. And it all comes, you know, it's all dependent on what Israel in the last days and times. Most every Bible scholar will tell you that Jesus emulated the Jewish system to call his 12. And I say fooey on that. I say he called his 12 first. And because of that prototype, there was a secondary, and that was the 12 sons of Jacob. I'm going to tell you what, the 12 sons of Jacob don't affect my life, but the 12 disciples of Jesus do. If I look at everything preceding the event of the coming of the Lord in flesh, then Rabbi Yeshua picking his 12 disciples also happened first. It was the first order of what the Lord did when he started his ministry, his messianic ministry. He went to Jordan. He was baptized. He went to the wilderness. And when he came out of there, he began to collect his disciples. And he collected 12 of them. Well, somebody said the reason why 12 is because the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Doesn't that make sense? No, no. Jesus is first. See, that's the, my whole thing with the plan. Jesus' plan is first. What happens before that is just bringing us to Christ. It looks like, look at the temple. Look at the tabernacle. The tabernacle was not the real. He came and tabernacled among us was the real. And all the types and things that went on in that tabernacle were just showing us towards Christ. It was what was going to be. The tabernacle was not the real. The 12 sons of Jacob were not the real. The real was to come, and it was the one son and the only son and the only begotten son of God. Can you say amen? And so most scholars are going to tell you that Jesus picked his 12 so that it could emulate what was already there. And then, uh, you know, my question is, why did the Lord pick 12 if it wasn't because of the 12 sons of Israel and he wanted to look like what was their government? It's because he wanted 12. Had nothing to do with Israel. Because he had, in his order, already picked 12 to begin with. It was on the front page. And what happened behind that really doesn't matter. Because he wanted 12 is why he picked 12. Is that okay? Can I say that? Is, is it okay? Will I get churched if I say that? He wanted 12 and he just picked 12. But that was his design to start with. That's what he had already laid in order. That's the first order. Everything to do with Jesus Christ is the first order. It's the first priority. It's above everything else. And so whatever he did with 12 and the reasons why he had 12 and picked 12 are completely up to him. I don't know why there isn't anything in the Scripture that tells us why, 
And, uh, but there is some, you know, some guessing and, and people surmise certain things. Uh, they say, have you ever done Bible numerology? I will suggest that you don't. We knew a man, my dad knew him years ago, a very brilliant man. I mean, this guy was like, he had a great mind. He wrote a volume of Bible numerology that was about, I don't know, I think it was about 1,200 pages thick. And when I open that and start reading, my brain is just sizzling. I can't even grasp what's going on with all this numerology. Of course, there are a lot of people that have used numerology and, and a secret coding in the Scripture. I always get a kick out of people that go to chapter and verse, and then they go try and find that same chapter and verse in another book so they can compare, compare so like John 3.16. John 3.16, and then you go to another book, 3.16, another book, 3.16. Don't you know that the Bible wasn't written with chapters and verses? So, I mean... Numerology is just subject to a lot of diversity, okay? But there are certain things in the Bible, certain numbers in the Bible that do speak to us, do kind of mean some things. But, you know, and I love it. Every year, the mega ministries, you can tune them in after the first of the year, they'll grab a, a chapter and a verse. Let me tell you, for instance, Psalms, uh, I knew they did one on Psalms 51. I want everybody now to give $51. The Lord has told me and laid on my heart that we give $51. We go to Psalm 51 and we give $51. And you plant that seed, and that's foolishness. That's not Bible, even numerology. That's just trying to build people out of money is all that is. And so, but there is this thing about God using certain patterns and numbers. And, and so... If Jesus used 12, maybe there's some connection. Is that okay? Is everybody ready to take the next step? Have we taken the first step yet? We're ready to take the next step in this. Okay, now, this is with conjecture. This, you know, I'm, I'm just going to tell you just kind of what I, what I see out of this. The 12... I believe is fundamental. I believe it's foundational. Jesus, the cornerstone, his 12 apostles, the rest of the foundation. That is scriptural. In the old time, the cornerstone was laid in first. Everything was set true. Everything was set straight upon that cornerstone. The cornerstone determined what straight was and what true was. That's still in order. Men don't get to determine that. Say, so, well, you know, the Lord needs to understand that this is a, a new time, a new people, we have new advances, and he just didn't lay out for that. Yet, yeah, no, he laid out the foundation. Himself, the cornerstone, and the apostles were in place. And now, one of the things that, if we go back to uh, Matthew, the 16th chapter, Jesus said, Whom do men say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus retorts this, Thou art Peter, a stone, a rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, we know Jesus building it upon the declaration. But, wait a minute. Peter is certainly a part of that foundation. 
So maybe it is true that upon this rock I will build my church. Because those disciples are foundational. They're in place. And I'm going to tell you something by thunders. I'm not letting anybody dig them out. It's being tried. No, we don't, you know, somebody said, you know, we, we don't listen to Paul. He just, Paul is the 12th disciple out of season. Not the one that they voted in, but the one that Jesus called on the way to Damascus, right? Well, we don't listen to him anymore. He kind of, you know, he just, uh, we just, we just want to listen to the words of Jesus. I'll tell you some of the words of Jesus. You listen to these men. That's the words of Jesus. You listen to those who I've set in place. Well, we just, you know, it's just times have changed and things are different. Those men are foundational to our faith. Like it or not. And say, well, I don't, you know, the timing and, and it's 2,000 years old. And that's a good point because it being 2,000 years old, it has, it's, it has a, a certain foundational uh, uh, security to it that what they have said and what they proclaimed is absolutely right. The last 2,000 years bears witness that what they say is right. And so do we get one disciple, though, representing each one of the tribes of Israel? Maybe we'll go that direction. Um, Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. Matthew is the only other one that we can guess with. They called him Levi, probably because he was of the tribe of Levi. But then we get to Simon, Peter, and Andrew. Uh-oh, we can't get two different tribes there. They're brothers. Then we get to John and James. Oh, no, we did it again. We can't get all the... So all the tribes are not represented because... Jesus is not doing this according to what was. He's doing this according to what is and to what he has set in place and what he has called. And he called these men. He called these guys. And he said to them, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, these 12 men. Now, we know that one of them departed. But later on, Paul is going to come into that place and keep it the 12. And so the Scripture is built on that. The foundation of the church is built on that. And so I'm reading in Matthew, the ninth chapter. I hope nobody is bored already. Um, now we're going to talk about something that, that is, is a little bit sort of opinion, okay? Is that all right? Uh, Matthew, the ninth chapter, and I'm reading in Matthew, ninth chapter. And it starts out like this. It says, in the 18th verse, it says, as he spake these things, such and such happened. The 18th verse, 918. While he spake these things. What things? He was talking about the kingdom. He was talking about, they came to him, and John's disciples and said, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus began to tell them, the reason why is because that I'm still here. But when I leave, they'll be fasting. And then he goes on to also share with them about the kingdom. Now, the kingdom is going to be different. God is not going to patch up the old 12 kingdom. He's not doing that. He's not pouring wine in an old wineskin. He's not taking a new piece of cloth and sewing up the old jacket. That's not what he's doing. 
but he is doing something completely new. And so as he is speaking this, there comes to him a ruler out of the synagogue. And you could call this chance and conjecture. You can just, you know, hey, you just pass it off. But I see something here that looks like to me there's something about 12 here. And as he begins to talk to this man, this man has a daughter who is sick. She's grievously sick. She's about to die. And even while they are talking, someone comes to him and says, your daughter has died. And so we know that Jesus said, I'm going to go to where she is, and I'm going to raise her up. As he spake these things, Jairus comes to him. Do you think that's by chance? And why would the Scripture say, as he is speaking this, that Jairus comes to him? Because there's something here. And why would the Scripture waste the time to say that she was 12 years old? Hmm. He's talking about the kingdom. And we got to throw a 12 in there now. She's 12 years old. Listen, I'm going to tell you this. The system was sick. The system was about to die. Jacob and his sons had run their course. It would be about them anymore. That's going to die. But out of that, God is going to raise up life. Tabitha. You come up out of there now because out of a dead system, out of a system that's not working, out of a system of 12 that literally does not know who God is, the Lord is going to raise up. Those men are Jewish that come out of there. The first church is Jewish that comes out of there. God is going to raise life, and there's going to be a new 12 given, and the new 12 are going to bring life to the church. Can you say amen? Well, that's, you know. We could just let it go, except there was a woman on his trip to Jairus' house. There is a woman who has been sick with an issue of blood, just happened to be how many years? Mm -hmm. Just happened to be, you know, it's just weird conjecture. That first of all, while he's speaking these things, that a man comes to him and has a daughter of 12 years old, she's going to die. It's no problem for the Lord, he can raise it up. Now a woman who has been afflicted with an issue of blood. So you almost have to see a little bit, call it prophetically. But I think there's a reason here. I think why this all came out. She had had an issue of blood for 12 years. She went to the spin doctors and they couldn't fix her. Let me tell you something about Israel. They had had an issue of blood for 1,200 years. And all of their doctors could not fix it. It's going to take the blood of Yeshua to fix the system. Can you say amen? And so she touched him. See, Rabbi Jesus has a as the disciples around him, they're walking, and she makes her way through the crowd, and she touches him. A person that is unclean in any way, a leper, a person that has a disease, cannot touch a rabbi. If you touch a rabbi, they will stone you. I'll tell you something different about Rabbi Jesus. 
he not only lets people touch them, he says, come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is not only inviting them to come, but when they get there, he throws his arms around them. This is a different kind of a rabbi. Can you say amen? And the system that he's going to put together is different than the old system where he said to them, he said, you lay on them heavy burdens that they can't even bear and you don't take one finger to lift the weight off of them but what I tell the people is come to the rabbi come to Jesus you may be afflicted you may be sick you may be down you may have issues in your life but if you can touch him the only thing you need to do in your life is connect somehow to him not to the systems not to the old not to Israel not to scriptures that you can memorize You need to connect yourself somehow to Jesus, and he's going to fix your life. Can you say amen? That's the way it's going to go. That's the way that it's going to go, and his blood is going to clean it up. Now, I'm I'm cruising towards the end here. There is a term for adhering solely to the teaching of, of Rabbi Jesus about the kingdom. There's a term for that. And it's called replacement theology. Does anybody know what replacement theology is? It's really easy. The first word gives it away. Replacement. Oh, you just believe in replacement theology. Oh, you better believe I do. See, those that believe in the old system are still with the old system, still honoring the old system. Many of them are looking to go back to the days of Davidic worship. I'm not going back there. Many are looking for the perfect red heifer to get that final sacrifice for the people of Israel. I don't know what kind of demon came up with that. That certainly isn't about Christ. But so... The replacement is this, simply. Israel was done. I don't have anything against Israelis. I don't have anything against Jews. They are not the chosen people of God. And I would get shut down, my microphone turned off, and asked to leave if I said that in 99.9% of the churches across America. Because they simply don't believe it. They believe the Jewish system stayed in place and that for the Gentiles, we have Jesus. John Hagee made this statement. Some of you might like him and watch him. He's made a lot of good statements, but this one is bad. Jesus was not the Messiah to the Jews. I don't know who gave him that, but it wasn't the Lord. But because you believe the system was right, the system still stands and it still goes and it's, Jesus Jesus said, I leave your house desolate. I take the kingdom and I give it to someone else. The harlots, the tax collectors will go in before you guys. That's really, you know, that throws in the face that 
this theology of replacement, it's, you know, it's so horrible to believe that, that God did something else and left the Jews out. He didn't leave the Jews out. He started with them. It was downtown Jerusalem, man, the early church. The Spirit of God was poured out downtown, and he did not refuse them. But anyone who would take him, he came to his own. His own received him not, but to as many as received him, he gave them authority to become the children of God, not the system. He didn't empower the system again. But the system is gone. So, well, they're the timepiece of, of all things, you know, that, see, replacement, replacement theology, it destroys the foundation of systematic theology that claims that Israel still remains the chosen people of God and all things filter through them. So the end times, nothing happens. And I know people are so hooked up with this that they can't see anything else. The end times are all about the Jews. The end times are not about Israel. The end times are about the church. They're about the ecclesia. They're about the wall that has been broken down. There is not two. There is just one. There's just one group of followers of Jesus Christ. And whether you're Jew or Greek or Gentile or male or female, and that's where we're stopping. We're not going any further than that. But if you're one of those two and you are a Jew or a Gentile, there is one dimension and that is in Jesus Christ seems to settle some issues for me if they have a kingdom that's not about the beloved son I don't want any part of it Jesus is my king Jesus is my Lord. Hallelujah. And so now, without me, you can do nothing. To remind his disciples, apostles, 12 men that the church is built upon, you can't do anything without me. Don't ever take control of the church into your hands. We're founded on Yeshua, Rabbi Yeshua, and his 12 apostles. But never do we get to a place where the apostles take over the church. Jesus is always the cornerstone. Everything is straight by Him. Everything is in line by Him, not by us. Sometimes we get out of line. I know preachers get out of line. We do. We, we get thinking things that we need to, need to get rid of. And God's help, Lord, help us, you know, to keep it in order. Keep your church in order. Does anybody know what the NAR is, the New Apostolic Reformation? I hope you haven't studied much on it. It's way out of base. It's way off. In no way are these men going to replace the original apostles. There is no one going to replace an original apostle. No one. You'd have to dig them out of the foundation to get them out of there, and we're not going to stand by and let that happen in this church. Don't listen to them. They're trying to lead God's people back to Israel. We're not going back to Israel. There's a reason why we listen to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, Peter, John, and Jude. Because for 2,000 years they have been the supporting cast of this thing we call the church. That the faith that we have doesn't lie 
in me and in Rodney. It doesn't lie in the brothers of this church. It lies in that foundation that Jesus laid down. He's the cornerstone. He laid the apostles in place. They wrote to the church. They directed the church. They encouraged it. We wouldn't know about salvation if they had not written to us. So thank God it's still in place. Can the church say amen? Thank God that foundation is still in place. And so the Lord says one final thing about us, and I'm going to close. In the rabbi's prayer in John 17, verse 20, I do not petition concerning these only, talking about his 11 plus is going to be Paul. Rather also concerning those who will believe through the logos of them into me, that all may be one. Look at this. Just as you, Father, and me, and I, and you, that also they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. If you align to the foundation which is already laid, you become one with that foundation. You are part, then, of the building. But if any man lay any other foundation than what has already been laid, Paul said, beware of that. And that's why, folks, I'm not looking for a new move. I'm not looking for a new thing out here to happen. I want an old thing. I... I want to go back to the old foundation. And listen to me. These stones have not deteriorated. They have not gone away. They're still there. They're still speaking to us. They're still preaching to us. And we are still believing the word that they have given. And we are one. Can you say amen? There is and only ever was and only will be one God who has become to us one Rabbi Yeshua Jesus there is and was only one following which has become the ecclesia, the church of Jesus Christ. And it's one perfect plan that God designed in the beginning. He laid it out. He rolled out the first page. He saw it, and it took a while for the world to see it. But now we look back at it, and we see it in full color. It is Jesus Christ. It is His apostles. It is His foundation. It is His framework. It is the roof that He puts on it. It is the house of God. And so this morning, what God determined to begin with, He has put it into action, and it has become complete. Can you say amen? Would you stand? Let's just give the Lord a hand clap of thank you right now. Thank you, Lord. Come on, clap their hands with me this morning. Thank you, Lord. 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 We are glad to be a part of the family of God, which is the house that you have built. No other has built it, Lord, but you've built it. You put it together, Lord, your plan, your purpose. And you have plan and purpose for each and every one of us individually if we abide in that foundation and in that house which you have constructed. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you've set all things in order.
You remain our rabbi. You remain our director, our teacher, our guide, our God. Lord, may we go out of here this morning just believing in you even more. We pray in your name, Jesus. Everyone said amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Have a good afternoon. Be back tonight, 6 o'clock.